Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Are you experiencing repeated vulva vaginal infections? The incredible products at Momotaro Apotheca are here to help. Momotaro Apotheca is a certified organic and cruelty-free care line which gently treats symptoms associated with common issues like yeast infections, bacterial vaginosis, UTIs, and more. Their proactive plant-based products are a safe, sustainable solution, not only helping to prevent infections, but also solve acute conditions. Use them every day for itching, inflammation, or irritation, and let them treat the root of the infection. To find out more, go to www.momotaroapotheca.com. That's www.momotaroapotheca.com. Welcome to The Happy Vagina, a podcast dedicated to celebrating pioneers in the women's space who've made a difference in health, equality, and relationships. Each week, we chat to an inspiring human being as they explore the experiences that completely change their outlook, promising not only to educate, but also to entertain and enlighten. And this week, I am beside myself excited to be joined by ER Fightmaster, award winner, actor, producer, writer, and musician, groundbreaking in so many ways, but perhaps currently most famous for playing the world's first non-binary doctor on Grey's Anatomy. (laughs) ER, welcome to the Happy Vagina. I'm so excited to be here. I feel that I owe Katrina Scorsoni, like if I ever get to meet her, I'm going to hug her for the longest time because I found you and you found me <laughs> through her coming on the podcast, right? Well, I listened to the episode y'all did and I thought it was really interesting. So yes, that is now how we are meeting. Yeah. And actually I, I have got to say that you, you promoted it and I, listen, I know that she's your partner in crime. She's your partner on Grey's Anatomy. Love interest still? Is that right? Mm-hmm. You still you still getting jiggy together on screen? I'm still, we got some jiggy left. <laughs> okay. So obviously you love her and, and, and you talk about that quite openly. Whenever you're interviewed, you're very joyous in your celebration of each other as human beings, actually. But I have got to say that I'm pretty blown away by the women it's either what Grays does to you or why you end up on Grays, but the amplification that you gave her episode and that you therefore gave my podcast and the work that I'm doing in this space and the conversations that I'm having is really, really unusual. Well, thank you. I it's appreciate incre- that. It was incredibly generous. I'm having this talk actually with a lot of people right now in the artist space of instead of relying on networks or other massive components of our industry to platform us, we are kind of responsible for platforming each other. And then when you really take that responsibility away from these like massive industry titans of they're the ones giving you the opportunity. No, we are the ones giving each other opportunities. So whenever my friend's art comes out and I think it's fantastic, I use my platform to platform them and vice versa. And I think it's a, it's a healthy community building tool. Mm, and you also, in your description of how the industry works and is, is run by titans, you, you missed out the word patriarchal systems. <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's an ugly little world. <laughs> but to a certain extent, like, you know, before the patriarchy in healthcare, but in all industries started, women and communities did work like that to amplify each other. It was just kind of taken as read that to celebrate and support was part of community. And really what you did for us was you introduced us to your community. And I'm super grateful. And I'm super grateful. And now you're here. Of course. Thank you. (laughs) And I've already told you that we put out a request for questions from your community and mine. We were absolutely inundated. And we're going to come back to those at the end of the podcast. But 
before we get going into a deep dive into who is ER Fightmaster, we are going to start with Half Vagina Quiz, my binary, which seems kind of ironic given the fact that <laughs> <laughs> given given the fact that here we go. It starts like this. <laughs> I am the patriarchy. It's true. I'm just here. I'm, I'm like, a, I'm a red herring. <laughs> That's actually why I'm here. It's an intervention. <laughs> okay, brilliant. I can't wait. I'm going to be interventionized by ER Fightmaster. <laughs> Int- I've also just created a new word, interventionized. <laughs> okay, great. Are you, are you ready? I'm ready. So this, this is your desert island vagina quiz. Which of these would you take to a desert island with you? Brief or G-string? I mean, brief, there's more fabric. Uh, meaning that you could do other stuff with the fabric <laughs> yeah. or just that they're more comfortable? <laughs> like, I, I mean, I, like if I'm going to the island to tan, I guess I would do a G-string. But if I'm, like, as if it's a deserted island, I'm, the more fabric, the better. Yeah. Okay, good. Well, you could make maybe a bra top out of the bottom part of the boy show. I don't if know. If I am on a deserted island... Um, I can assure you I'm not wearing a bra. I'm not wearing a bra right now. I mean, let's face it. If we're on a deserted island on our own, we're not wearing any pants, are we? Uh, the only I, That would be the only thing I would want is I would want briefs because I wouldn't want like bugs crawling up there. You know what I'm saying? Very, very sensitive. So actually, yeah, firmly okay, briefs. Okay, briefs. We're going with briefs. Next question. Tampon or period pant? Um, period pant. Mm. I mean, if I can avoid a tampon... I honest to God, sometimes if it's like day three, I'm just wearing the ugliest mm-hmm. underwear I have and mm-hmm. I'm letting go. Do you find tampons uncomfortable? I was just talking to someone else about this and sometimes I find them really uncomfortable. I think they're disrespectful. I like legitimately think they're disrespectful. I think it's, I think it's so ridiculous that we have these, these things that happen to us every month. And we are meant to shove fabric up there to what stop it from coming out. It is supposed to happen. It it is supposed to happen or it wouldn't be happening. So I'm not going to clog it up if I'm not, if there's not a real reason to. Yeah, it's so interesting, isn't it? Actually, I was put on a medication. Uh, there was something going on with my hormones and they gave me a medication that stopped my periods for a while. And then I sort of had this gut instinct that things were settling down. And I went back to the doctors and I was like, I want to stop taking that medication. They were like, but why? You're doing so well on it. And I was like, because I'm missing the release. Like I'm, I'm missing mm-hmm. as much as sometimes I really fucking hate my period. You know, if it, mm-hmm. if it, if I have to be doing stuff or sometimes it's too heavy and I can barely like get through my day or whatever the thing is. But the bottom line is, is I think that it's part of our clearing. We get to like, you know, have almost a rebirth every month, you know? Yeah, it does. In a way it does feel good. And I have super painful periods, but it's, it's a way that my body checks in with itself every month. I do have, like, I feel like I'm having a conversation with myself in a pain tolerance way that half of a population doesn't get to have. So it's, you know, we have a heightened sense of self because of the period. Mm. When you, when you say that you have painful periods, are you on the endometriosis spectrum in terms of your periods? I am. You are. You've been diagnosed? I certainly am. Yes. Yes. Right. I got diagnosed actually when I was like, it was the first time I'd gone to a gynecologist in Chicago. I was like maybe 22 and uh, I had been avoiding it just because I think I think gynos are also a weird space for you know trans aligning people, non-binary people. It's 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 a tough space because it feels so feminine. Um, and I went there, and this wonderful doctor was asking me all these questions, and there were just things that I I didn't realize. Like I thought sex was supposed to be feel like knives. Like I thought it was supposed to feel like fire on your cervix when like something hit it. And <laughs> this doctor was like. <gasps> sweetie, no. <laughs> and everything changed. So but it, it was so, it was so helpful to get, to have a name for it because then I, I just felt my whole body be like, Oh great. We're not responsible for this. Mm-hmm. Like it's, you know what I mean? I like it, I was, I don't know. It just, everything made more yeah. sense. And also, well, maybe you weren't blaming yourself, but that thought of there's something wrong with me. It's like, Oh, there is something wrong with me. So it's like, rather than there's something wrong with me, yeah. like, is this like the kind of anxiety that goes with the not knowing? It's like, oh, okay, there's just something wrong with me. Yeah. And then I can work with that. Yes, absolutely. On your endometriosis, we are actually going to talk about women's health a bit, a bit later in more detail, but with the diagnosis, have you had to look at having any kind of operations or anything? Or My, my understanding of it is relatively limited because 
it's a, the medical space, ironically, is a space I don't at all enjoy. And so when, <laughs> once I got the diagnosis, I was really like, okay, great. Well, learned that. Mm. And, and I, I, I'm sure down the line, which is what I was told that say, if I ever wanted to carry kids, which I don't particularly want to carry kids, a surgery would be something I would have to do to do that. And I just don't see that super happening for me. So I'm going to ignore it as long as possible, like an irresponsible person. You do know that endometriosis can start to grow on other areas of your body. This is what I've heard. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I was like, I'm just going to leave this podcast now. I did not come on here to get scared. I click out. (laughs) This is what I've heard. I I have, I I recently had a a bunch of, this is like really an overshare, but I think it is helpful. I recently had. There is no oversharing on the happy vagina. (laughs) Hell yeah. I had a really, it was scary. It was like a lot of, I could feel that it was my ovary. And it was super, super painful. And so I got on the phone with, uh, I I had to find my insurance cards, all these things that I never use and figure out which union I'm getting my healthcare from and what I've paid for and all this stuff. And I was also traveling, which sucks because then there's no familiarity with the doctors that you're around. And this will, I think, register with uh, any of your listeners that hear this today that are trans. The process feels so humiliating because you you call on the phone and you introduce them to who you are and they go through the process of kind of reminding you of the names you don't use anymore and that you are female over and over and over again. Even if you're like, well, you know what, 100%, I understand what you're seeing on paper and now I'd like to move forward using this. And they're like, well, that's not what we're seeing on paper. So I'm telling them who I am while I'm in a lot of pain and they're telling me who they need me to be. And I just toughed it out for like a three day period and ignored it. And so my, my stress with doctors is not, it's, it is identity based. It's that I would love to go get my healthcare in order, but every time I do it, I walk away feeling this like deep, deep embarrassment. So that's my overshare of the day. I hope it's helpful to somebody else to hear that that is also what's happening to me. Yeah, it's definitely, I don't think that that is an overshare. And I, and, and, and weirdly, I think that what you're talking about is a bit of trauma to not be heard. And also that it's a kind of weird shaming and, you know, 190 million women, humans, I actually don't, I don't know. I don't know how they break that down. I'm going to just say that right now. But what I do know from another episode is that 190 million humans worldwide have endometriosis, which is 10% of the population. And that's not counting the people like you before you were diagnosed that just thought it was normal to have really painful sex, right? So, and people don't go to the doctors because of shame. You know, so it's, it's actually really important that you're sharing what you're sharing for, for all genders. Because while yours is very site specific to you and who you identify as, I actually think that it is important for all people that need to go and get checked to do with gynecological stuff. You know, I think everyone has their version of it, you know, which may not be as, as harsh or as disrespectful as yours. You know, it's all relative, which is something I've learned. It's all relative. So it's in no way a competition to the bottom on these things. I think that along the way in our, truly in our patriarchal society, we have turned medicine into this, this massive cold entity that is used to take money from the people who have it and not give help to the people who don't. And we have dehumanized our patients and we have created this huge separation of church and state between doctors and nurses and the people that they are helping. And that's all of our faults in a way that is a a culture we have all built. Mm. And so I do think (laughs) <laughs> men have I, built it but yeah anyway yeah men have built it because you you actually don't see when, <laughs> listening to the Katarina talk about it on your podcast was like yes that's true the, when you talk about midwives and you talk about a culture of women and queer people taking care of each other it actually is innately more kind and then you have men come in and they turn it into this massive for-profit system and it becomes shameful and humiliating for mostly everybody 
And that is what happens when we let men rule the world. That is our responsibility to change. Mm, mm, mm. Thank you. Next question. <laughs> We're going to come back to some, some, I've got some more questions about, about health for a human being who is non-binary, but we're going to come back at the end. Uh, next question, Brazilian or Bush? Bush. Bush. Also, I, I, this is funny because when you asked me that, I assumed you were asking me what I like on another person. And so, ah, so interesting. Bush and Bush. You got a real dyke today. That's literally so. just the sexiest answer I've ever had. <laughs> that is the sexiest answer that I've ever had. Bush. <laughs> But you like both. You, I on, like on, hair. On, on, or I, I mean, I've been told we're not allowed Hair's to. Hair's rad. It's, yeah. Once again, it's supposed to be there. And listen, everybody can do exactly what they want. But I do think it's weird that we are like making grown people with vaginas try to look like little girls. That's all. That's all. That's my personal. But I can tell you right now that men are doing it a lot now too. So that, but that's a longer conversation. It's not just. Uh, and let me tell you something. I don't like that either. Hairless. <laughs> no, it's, it's that thing's supposed to have a blanket on. <laughs> well, I mean, it's meant to fight germs. It's protection. So you are absolutely right. Now, listen. My next question is a detour because it's not the normal one that I ask. But this came in through one of your fan base, and it's kind of inappropriate. But actually, <laughs> it does lead me on to something that I wanted to ask you about. So I am going to add it in there. <laughs> Just boobs, or I've never, I've never asked a woman this, and I think that when you ask men this, is so inappropriate. But I'm going to ask you, and there is a reason why I'm asking you: boobs or ass. And this is not about yours. This is about your heart. Of course. Well, <laughs> well, it could be about you. Actually, it can be about you. I, I am an ass man. I'm an ass man myself. I think that there's a. You know what? What it, what it's really about is proportions. But I am it, at my core, <laughs> I am a ass man. Uh, the reason that I did add that in was because just yesterday, Meta Instagram, which we are both very active on, ER is on Instagram as Genderless Gapad. If you would like to follow them. But yesterday, they announced that the board of Meta, whoever they are, I mean, I think that would be kind of a fun skit to have like the board of Meta sat around a comedy skit, you know, like, (laughs) but they have said to Meta, whoever, so maybe they said to Zuckerberg, I don't know, that they have to stop being prejudiced against, well, it's not that they have to stop being prejudiced against women, that essentially at the moment, men can put their bare chests on Instagram and show their nipples. And that is not blocked. Now, last year, two non-binary people posted pictures of their bare chest and these posts were blocked and taken down and eventually they were put back up again. But it has forced the board to go back to the powers that be who are actually running Facebook and Instagram and say, you have to stop blocking non-men, let's say that, posting their top. Now, I am really excited about this because I really do feel that equality is important. And I'm also really conflicted about it because my nipples are like super, super, super part of my whole pleasure experience. Whereas I personally never met a man who, well, maybe one or two, but most men that I know don't have that. So for me, a woman's nipples and potentially a non-binary person's nipples are really part of the pleasure experience in a way that they're not necessarily for men. And I just wondered if you had any thoughts on it. I mean, I think the nipple thing is huge. It's like, obviously they're just making body parts illegal based on gender. It's one of those things when we're talking about the medical industry and shame, where they are trying to make us feel innately humiliated, which I think is part of the reason that they get so disturbed when trans men have top surgery is because now these nipples that were once illegal are not illegal anymore. And, and, and so you, you can look at it and go, oh, it's, it's really just men policing, not male bodies. That's all that it is. So I'm 100% pro put that nipple out in public. And also, man, I, on the other side of the spectrum, if you were to be like, nobody gets to have their nipples out in public, I think that was fine. Like if we all decided that nipples are a private thing and we're not putting that out in public, there are many times that I'll see a cis man running down the street and his little titties are out. And I'm like, oh my God, Jason, cover up. (laughs) So if we all have to cover up, I'm fine with it. If David and Jason and John have to wear pasties, I'm fine. 
But if they get to yeah. be out there in these streets with their little titties, then so should the rest of us. I completely agree with you. Okay, great. Now, this is your final question before we move on to some more serious conversation. Although I've got a funny feeling that there's going to be lots of laughs in this podcast. Uh, my last <laughs> question for you is um, clitoral or G-spot? Well, whatever she likes. <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing so beautifully on your Desert Island Vaginas ER. You are a very, very, very funny human being. I've been watching videos of you and absolutely pissing myself. And you did start your career, actually. So, you, you know, you've had a couple of kind of quite significant TV roles, but you came up through the improv and comedy circuit in Chicago and are a, a, comedi- a comedian for that reason. I, I think one of the things that I would really love to know is when you knew you were funny. Right away. <laughs> I mean, truly right away. It's, it's, it's an innate thing. I teach comedy, which is why I say that. I, I've taught a lot of workshops and you can help people when you are teaching a comedy workshop or an improv workshop, you can help people communicate better, but you can't make people innately funny, right? You can't do that. And you can help innately people hone their comedy, but you can't make people funny. And I knew that I was funny at a young age because it was the thing that I was actually best at. Like at my school, I was the funniest person. So I knew that people felt comfortable and happy around me for a reason. And it was because I was making them laugh. So I always had a relationship, a positive relationship to being funny. And I was also, my mom would bring me to hang out with all of her girlfriends. So then I was watching adults talk all the time. So while my peers are talking to each other, I'm also spending a lot of time talking to adults and kind of learning adult humor at a young age and bringing it back to kids. So these kids are like, who is this? And I knew that it was, a, it was something I was crafting from a really young age. I knew how to, I knew that it was a skill set. And are you, do you have siblings? I do. I okay. have a younger brother who's taller than me, which I hate. <laughs> is he funny? <laughs> No, he's not funny at all. And I love, <laughs> I love him so much. He, we, we joke about that all the time. He learns jokes. Like he learns like knock, knock jokes and he'll say them or he loves puns, but he missed the boat on that one genetic trait, but he's also a lot sweeter than I am. So it's a trade-off. Do you have any kind of sense memory of the first time though, when you were a child and someone laughed at you and what the feeling was that you had when somebody, cause for me, I've, I've, I, I don't consider myself to be as funny a person as you are, but I do, I do make people laugh. My mind's more erratic. I have to be in the mood, but I, I remember the feeling being, and this may say too much about my psychological well-being as a child. I mean, not, not as an overshare, but I remember feeling accepted in a way that I hadn't felt in any way before, that there was some ignition inside of me as a child when I made people laugh, that it was, I mean, it was like a kind of a, a, a sort of a, a divine moment. Do you remember the very first moment that somebody, that you brought someone joy? I remember the feeling of people coming around me. Like I was the meeting point. And I remember a lot of that when I was a kid, you know, kind of holding court. And I more so remember the the jokes that I tried out that were at other people's expense and knowing in that moment that I'd never do that again. And and I because I was playing so many sports as a kid, I was never the best person on my team. I always worked really hard, but what I was always the best at, I was always a team captain. And so I do remember in moments of deep care, instead of being intense, getting people to smile. And so my comedy, a lot of people are like, oh, comedians, they're so fucked up. Like, well, everybody's fucked up. My comedy does not come from a place of needing to defend myself constantly. My comedy comes from a place of, enjoying the feeling of like bringing people to life. So that that's as, that's as close to a specific memory as I can get. Mm, So watching somebody's mood change 
from being disconnected, yeah. shut down, maybe even sad into some place of joy. I remember actually watching my parents. I can say that specifically. I remember watching my parents back and forth. They weren't super like tender, but not in a bad way. Like my dad was super funny and my mom is super witty and they would bring each other back is what I would call it with a joke. And so I understood watching them that sometimes people don't want this big moment of like calling them out or they just want you to give them the ability to come back gracefully. And sometimes the best way to do that is with a laugh. So then when I went on to play sports, even in college, and you'd have these, these people that I were playing with that were better than me at their skill set, but they had bad attitudes. I had so many conversations with coaches that were basically like, you have to spiritually pair yourself with this person. You are responsible for making her happy. You are responsible for making her not get too down on herself. Not We need her focused. So make her happy. That's that's kind of intense. I think that's quite a pressure. It is. Because one of the things that, that I've learned about myself through needing to do to process and understand myself better as an actor, actually. I mean, I think it's just kind of a rite of passage that we, we have to kind of unpick a bit, but, um, is that some of the comedy in me, which was, was a way to deflect and to keep people at bay and to stop people getting in. And I've had to learn to let people in because my trauma as a child meant that I had a wall around me. But if I was funny, people felt like, they knew me and they felt like they were getting in and they felt like Mika's like my best friend. I know her. She's like, you know, but actually they were, they were nowhere near me. But I mean, and I think you, you, you said about people saying comedians are fucked up. I think what I've just described is the sweeter version of that, which is that often people that are really funny, it's a mask. And we, we all have a mask. And you, you know, obviously you just said that you were under pressure. I'm putting words in your mouth, but you were, there was an expectation that you would use this gift that you had. Have you had any similar kind of thoughts or feelings or need to do any work around how you use comedy in your life, where it sits with you as a human being to uh, deflect or or is it for you? Is it just a very natural thing? I definitely use it to deflect. I have for many, many years struggled on and off with depression, pretty severe depression. And I have always felt that responsibility to not share that with people because their joy always feels so much more important than whatever I'm feeling. So I'm like, it sounds like what you're describing too, is like being a super outward facing person. It's you're bringing the mask to the party. And in that way, you do get stuck in a position of Mm. making yourself feel unknown, but you are the one that is making yourself unknowable. So I'm coming to a party and I'm not in a good place and no one will find that out. And then I leave the party and everyone feels like they had a nice time Mm. with me and I'm still in the same down place. And now I'm getting better as I get older of trying to get out of my own way with shame, letting people know a bit where I'm at. Cause I'm finding the truth is that I'm, I'm funnier when I am connected, when I'm feeling connected. And so there are ways to use the comedy to not deflect. There's so many more ways actually to use comedy to connect honestly. Mm-hmm. For me, what I've worked out is that as a child, in no uncertain, because I, I was very volatile and I had stuff that had happened or gone on that I didn't identify. I hadn't realized and it had, uh, like you, I, I, I actually, I don't struggle with depression anymore. I'm just going to touch every single piece of wood around me and like body, body <laughs> hug the wood, body hug the wood. But from, from the age of, from the age of eight, actually through to the last few years, I've deeply had uh, not clinical, I would say spiritual, um, depressions. And I think I was told that they were too much that I f- either I felt or I was told by people that somehow or other my emotions were too much. And I think that's where the comedy came out. So would you, is that kind of a similar thing for you that the hiding of the depression is fear that you, well, for me, it was fear that I was not lovable, you know? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Well, I love you. <laughs> thank I you. love you a lot. I love um, you too. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> It's interesting. I, the, even right now, I'm like struggling to be t- super transparent. I, I grew 
up in an environment where I was watching adults for personal safety. And so in that sense of watching people, watching people, watching people, I immediately, everybody's feelings are more important and I live in service to them, right? So I live in service to watching their emotions and tracking them and making them feel better. And there's no room for me inside of that because if I'm not maintaining them, then who is, was always the thought. So if, and I don't, I didn't, I didn't have the ability to be, to be catered to. I, I actually have a, I don't have a hard time being with partners. I've always been a partner person, but I do have a hard time asking for and receiving care. And, and I, I think it's because I do feel like you're saying, if I do show myself in these super weak moments that I've somehow lost all my value because my value is to yeah. keep them happy. I really identify with that. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. It's big though. It's big conversation. You know, it's, um, in some ways being performers, we're forced actually to look at this stuff because I think to be a good performer, you have to actually really understand your own psychology and where things are coming from. And I, and I hope that our sharing this honesty will really help people that potentially don't, you know, use their body as a vessel to create, regardless if you're, if you're a comedian or, somebody who has a, you know, a, a job in the healthcare service. These things are very human and real. Fortunately and unfortunately, it is the skill set that has worked for us and has added beauty to our lives. So at the same time that like, interpersonally, it can sound sad that like, okay, I'm not the best at receiving care. This is where I find my worth, whatever. Yeah, there are some really negative parts of that. And I was a performer for a long time in Chicago and in Amsterdam. And you go out every night and you look at these people, these, you know, 500 people and you look at them and you scan the whole room and you read every emotion in the house. And you really do. You go pocket by pocket. You can say, okay, the back corner is bad tonight. We got a bachelorette party over here. They're going to be rowdy, but we need to give them attention or they'll get rowdier. We've got businessmen in the front. We've got a family over here. So, okay, keep it clean. You got all these things that you really are focusing on all these things. There is no room for your bad mood. And the fear is real. When you come on stage and you are about to do two hours of comedy and you come on stage and you are feeling negative that day, the audience does turn on you. They don't like it. And so you do have to cater to their experience, which is, you know, also it's the only time that we really allow that kind of negativity is with men. You'll go to a stand-up show. At least it used to be. It's, it's less and less this way. But you go to a stand-up show and you get these you know, white guys holding microphones, like <laughs> morons, white guys holding these microphones and just saying every nasty thought they've ever had. And an audience full of white guys is like, yes, my Lord and Savior. And I just went to a comedy show the other day with a friend of mine and most of the people on stage were cis women or queer. and. Then at right at the end of the set, this dude, this guy walks up and this is guy and he's holding his microphone and he just starts so negative. And the audience actually, because it had been used to seeing not male people up there was turned off. And so he gets out there and he says this like bad, this kind of lame joke and no one laughs. And his banter. Energy, yeah. And I think his, we can call it banter. His banter. <laughs> and it's really, and it was stiff and it was kind of mean and it was low energy and no one responded. And he got mad at the audience. And instead of the audience feeling, and I've seen it happens, feeling this like, okay, yeah, we should please him by clapping more. The audience was like, no, fuck you, earn it. I've literally got goose. So <laughs> white male stand-ups better yeah. be careful. Yeah. They better be careful. Yeah, I've got goosebumps all over, all over. Now you are obviously, I know that, that, that it's still a big part of your life, but there has been this major change in your life, which is that you are now playing a non-binary doctor on Grey's Anatomy called Kai Bartley. And it's the first ever non-binary, as far as we know. I mean, I, I did try and Google and then I just gave up, although it doesn't matter. But ostensibly, this is the first ever non-binary or actively promoted non-binary um, doctor on national American television and internationally. What has been the greatest gift for you 
in terms of your work as an actor playing this part. Playing Kai. Yeah. I mean, I really do mean in terms of like coming from stage comedy, what's the best thing for you about being on set and playing a doctor other than trying to learn the jargon? It's, um, (laughs) comedy is harder. Comedy is harder is what I'll start with. But it's been a real fun stretch to play Kai because I also, when I started playing Kai, I had some understandings of what I wanted to do with a character. I wanted the character to feel a little bit neurodivergent. I wanted the character to feel, I wanted you to feel the character's authority. So I didn't want the character to be too comical. I wanted the audience to feel like in that way that we kind of do with men that when Kai was warm, that they had earned it. Like, (laughs) which sounds can sound negative, but it was more, I wanted almost to feel like a Dom sub relationship with the audience with Kai. And because I think that for a long time, that show has had these leading men, like a McDreamy or a McSteamy, this kind of thing where they have these guys come on and you're constantly like, waiting to get their approval or you're, you're waiting for these things. And so I wanted to come on and play that archetype, but make it queer. And I feel, I feel honestly, like I did a good job with that. And the best part of the job has for sure been the reach. I, I think that Kai and their relationship with Amelia was really healthy for a lot of people to see possibly for the first time. And personally, the the best thing that I've walked away with is I have friends on the show that I love and I loved working with Katarina. So it's in, in many ways, it's been, I'm, I'm incredibly grateful. And you, but you're talking past tense. Are you talking in the past tense? Well, I think that this season I have not done as much. So it's... (laughs) I think I'm, when I think about the, the body of work that I've done, I'm talking about last year. <laughs> yeah. Okay, good. Okay. Do you, do we need, do I need to sign an NDA here and like cut all that out? No. Okay. You haven't already? <laughs> <laughs> no, don't you know they're illegal now since Weinstein? We're going to take a short break. Before we do, I just want to let you know that this podcast is produced by the female founded production company, Pineapple Audio Production. Pineapple create groundbreaking podcasts from concept through to your headphones at the very highest level of audio. Their international team support independent podcasts like mine, The Happy Vagina, as well as major brands like the BBC and Grazia. And they are super passionate about helping young people into the audio industry. To find out more, go to pineappleaudioproduction.com or check them out on Instagram at pineappleaudioproduction. Having a weak bladder is nothing to be ashamed of. And I'm here to tell you there is help. Jude supplements are natural, backed by science and approved by doctors. They were co-created with real women and are clinically proven to reduce leaks by 79%. Jude supplements contain a blend of pumpkin seed extract and soy germ extract, two very simple yet highly effective natural ingredients. Are you ready to start your 12-week course? Go to www.wearejude.com and you can receive 10% off with the code thehappyvagina10. That's www.wearejude.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
I think at the beginning of the podcast, I may have said you're a very funny woman. Um, so, you know, and, and I remember, I remember maybe five, six years ago, I hosted a panel for something and one of the waiters in the room um, was non-binary or a they. And I had a great conversation because I was able to ask the stupid questions. And this person was kind to me about it and allowed me to say, so what if I was going to say this, how would I say that? And um, it was great for me. It was great. I welcome stupid questions, by the way. I, I We're in this space. I but welcome do you, But do you, uh, what, how's your tolerance? And for people, because you've got the, obviously a huge following of people who identify as they and if they are going naught to 60 to every single time somebody who has been raised in a white patriarchal society so they're struggling to kind of not because they're being obnoxious but just because whatever the reason that they get it wrong what are your tips for people to to, to stay warm and welcoming so that we can educate each other rather than cause conflict well i think the the responsibility comes it's it comes from the person asking the question right so the responsibility lies in am i asking a question that i'm afraid would be really disrespectful cuz then maybe i'll google it first but if i'm also if i'm coming and i'm asking you a question and I'm really coming from a good place. And I say, you know, you don't have to answer this. Please be patient with me. But this is my question. I feel like you could explain it to me best. That's an energy that I pick up on when people come to me. There are times that people ask me questions that I can tell are meant to be disrespectful. But I am very, very patient when someone comes to me with warmth and vulnerability and is asking me a question so they can treat somebody else better. So, so when, if someone's poking you a bit or being a little bit like um, sarcastic, so there's sort of an underlying feeling of, um, of patronizing, actually. They're there, they're there. This is this thing that you're doing and I just need to understand it because I need to understand it rather than because I deeply want to know and respect you as another human being. Yeah, I think sometimes people ask you questions to embarrass you. And I know when someone's being disrespectful under the guise of like, I just want to know better. Like, uh-uh. I've had enough nuanced conversations to know the difference between a negative energy and a warm energy. And at the same time, you're asking somebody about their identity. So the responsibility is like, if you might be asking a question that you don't get a response that is in warmth, and that has to also be okay. If I'm asking about somebody's experience, I have to be okay with what they're willing to give me. You know what I mean? Yeah, 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 I do. So you have said that you knew that you were gay. As a, as a young person growing up. And then it's more recent that you, you, used, you used a beautiful expression. You said that you were negotiating gender identity or navigating it a few years ago. So going back to your childhood and growing up, what was the experience like for you? Were you able to come out as a gay person in your community easily? Was that something? And again, this is, this is a question that so many people have, have asked me to ask you. So I guess there's a lot of young people particularly that want to know what that was like. Yes. I think I actually had a pretty, I had a, I had a trans childhood. So I, I really, when I was growing up, I was always shirtless and I loved little girls and I felt like a cis boy. All my friends were cis boys. And I remember when I finally got told around seven or eight that I had to put a shirt on by a, a neighborhood woman who just thought it was so indecent that I was running around with all my friends. But I had the same haircut that they did and I had all the same clothing. And guess what? I was seven. I didn't have any titties. And so then what happened was I did not have... You, and we don't, right? We don't have an innate experience of queerness as shame until someone tells us that our behavior is wrong and they can't call us a fag. So they say something like, put your shirt back on. And then you go, Oh, huh. This energy that I have is bad. It's pissing off all these adults. Okay. And so then you find the ways to conform. And when I, I stopped, I feel like right now I'm back at actually where I was at five. I, I feel now like I have the exact childhood joyfulness about my identity and this, this understanding of who exactly I am that I had when I was a kid that I had to fight for like a 15 year period because people wanted me to be a girl. And that is just not who I am. And now I have the ability to articulate it. 
So I knew the whole time. I didn't have the language for it. That's, that's different. I didn't have the ability to articulate it. Yeah, the conversation has widened, right? And thank God, which has given you the vocabulary to therefore come back to your intuitive feeling sense from your childhood that was stopped. And now there's a more freedom, not enough, but more. I mean, I think the statistics are, and I don't actually know, I'm sure this is under, but 1.2 million American adults between 18 and 60 are identifying as non-binary, which is like huge, you know, it's not a small thing. So one of the things that can happen for people as they investigate, explore, or navigate their identity is that they can have an experience of gender dysphoria. So would, would you say that you didn't have any until people started telling you you were wrong? So gender dysphoria, anyone listening, gender dysphoria is... As far as I understand it, 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 it describes the kind of discomfort or unease if you have a mismatch between what your biological sex is, born as, and we're talking really, really basic terms, okay? Because actually there's statistics that show that many, many, many babies are actually born without fully, when I say fully developed, I mean sex lots and lots and then they and then they and then they go one way or the other so it's actually a far more common than actually we're ever allowed to understand that many many babies take a while to go one way or the other so it kind of makes sense but um so the, the so for those listening gender dysphoria is basically a kind of an unease or a confusion that is during the process of trying to find oneself was that is that a good description of it i think the the way that I put it, first of all, you're right. There's a lo- massive intersex community and gender is medicalized. So the gender binary is medicalized. So, you know, they, a lot of times there's mutilation that is involved with intersex people because doctors want them to be, they need them to pick a sex. It's absolutely bizarre. Our hyper-focus on it is insane. But for me, gender dysphoria is your sex and your cultural gender or your sex and your gender do not line up or, and your, and cultural gender rather is being enforced upon you. So I'm born with a vagina. And so cultural gender is forced upon me. Femininity is forced upon me in a way that feels humiliating and shameful. And because I can't do it right, because it's not right. The balance is not there for me. Then I'm told I'm innately bad. That's the dysphoria. I feel dysphoric when I'm asked, but it's not femininity itself. That's a big distinction. It's not spiritual femininity and cultural femininity are different. So Americans would like you to believe that it is feminine to play with Barbies. That's psychotic. Babies don't innately, girl babies aren't born wanting a Barbie in their hand. We tell them they they want a Barbie. Girl babies aren't born thinking that they need to be a princess. We have them watch Disney movies. All of it is cultural programming, but that is not who we are. I have a very healthy balance of feminine and masculine energy. And I think most people do, but not everybody has a balance of cultural gender because they are forced to pick one. I didn't pick. I won't pick. So during the years between when the adults started to judge or shame you for who you were naturally, and did you have periods of time when for you it was a struggle to be you, I suppose? Like, I mean, you know, would you say that you had that dysphoria during those periods? Because, I mean, I mean, I, I was going to ask you, what's the greatest feeling since being able to find you? But you've kind of already answered it because you've expressed the joy, actually, and that you feel happier than you ever have. Can you see a direct link between unhappiness and that period of time where you were trying, like, or did you not try? Did you just do what you, you, you needed to, but were not as openly expressive about it? Well, what happened for me was I spent truly my entire teenage years in sweatpants, like sweatpants and a sweatshirt with my hair in a ponytail. And you can't blame me for not dressing like a girl because I have sports after this. I have practice. And I would never wear, (laughs) I would never wear like jeans or anything nice to school because uh, one, I didn't want to dress like a girl and I didn't want to get made fun of. And 
So I was just constantly in sports gear, which in some ways it's like when you see like little girls that have all their hair in their face and you're like, Oh, sweetie, it's going to be okay. Like it's hiding, right? My sweatpants were how I hid. And what I thought was because I was so bad at femininity, cultural femininity, I thought actually that I was like the ugliest person on the planet. Like I really had a strong understanding that maybe I was doing this wrong because I'm, I'm hideous. And that has to maybe also be why I'm depressed. And so I'm so bad at being a girl that I'm ugly and I'm ugly on the inside and everything's bad, which is fucking psychotic because at the same time that all of like my girlfriends were like giving, you know, hand jobs and not getting anything in return from their boyfriends, but they were wearing the right Hollister top. I was having full fledged sex with a queer partner of mine and we were just keeping it private. And it was like lovely and romantic and beautiful. Like all the beautiful parts of my life were the queer parts that I was keeping hidden. And all the ugly parts of my life were cis people telling me that I was doing the worst job on earth of being a woman. And I was like, cause I'm not, I'm not. And then I got to college and I saw all these fucking queer people and it's like, it dropped off of me right away. My understanding of myself is ugly. My understanding of myself is bad. All this shame, the minute that I was around other queer people and no one was forcing this like weird fucking like pink shit on me, then I was, I immediately actually like was like, oh, I'm, I'm hot. I'm fun. I'm happy. People love me. I love people. <laughs> like it was, it was me. At, it was like me in childhood was me as an adult and I was fully free. <laughs> and so the there of course there are moments where people are like well if for safety's purposes maybe you should hide basically for safety's purposes maybe if we go to this country you can pretend to be a woman i can't pretend to oh. be a woman oh it's like asking a black basketball player when he goes to like this deep south but then he's not fucking black <laughs> it's but in, and very specifically it's asking him to like paint his face white because everyone will still know that he's black just like everyone will know that i'm not doing femininity right so the thing is, I can, I can present as woman as possible. Everybody knows there's something off. Everybody knows. Well, I mean, I know that you, we're, we're, we're actually, I can see you. And I just had, it just, it really moved me what you've, you've just shared. The, and you are, you are hot and you are funny. Oh, thank and you. <laughs> and I'm so pleased you found it. I want to ask you a slightly difficult question, but I'm going to, it's really important for me to ask it. Um, because it's something that I don't know about and I want to learn more, which is to do with, and it's really important because you have just said that from a very young age, you knew that you were a they, you didn't know it was a they then, but you knew that you were non-binary. One of the, so, so it's kind of, there's a thing going on, right? So friends of mine, uh, their kids at schools in the UK, many, many, many young people in the schools and in, in the junior schools, the primary school, the little school, the kids are coming home and saying, I think I'm a boy rather than a girl or I'm, I'm a they. And um, this is a really difficult question for me, but this is how I feel about it. And I might be wrong, but I feel like there's a knowing which is what I hear you've described. And then I also think, because I've got nieces who are nine, 10, and they come home from school and they are picking up stuff. And some of it's like, I don't want to eat because the girl next to her says that she needs to be thinner. So they're picking up stuff. And that's psychologically very typical for small people when they're trying to find out who they are to copy the people next to them. So how do we navigate that as adults to help the little people not make a decision because this is probably the kind of thing that the, the, the GOP would use as a fucking example, but I'm going to use it. <laughs> I'm going to use it anyway. But you know, what if, if you have a really cool parents and the young person comes home and says, I think I'm this. And there's, there's an example where you say, Hey, yeah, let's explore that and allow that to be and where will you want to school? And if you want to wear a dress, wear a dress school, if you said you're a boy. And then there's another version where they go more and that young person isn't able so my in my upbringing I didn't get much choice to find out who I was because of my the way my family upbringing worked so how do we support little people and families I think that there are a lot of kids uh right now that are experimenting and they are not trans and maybe they won't settle on a non-binary identity but right now they are experimenting and what I actually think is I think that's so hopeful because 
And I think the parents that have kids that are coming home to them and experimenting with these things take the compliment because that means your kid is more in touch with finding out who they are through experimentation than they are following a strict set of inappropriate cultural norms about this is how boys behave and this is how girls behave. A lot of kids are saying, well, I actually want to behave like me. I want to figure out who I am without those insane rules, those arbitrary rules. And so the way that they're experimenting right now is, is maybe by using these pronouns. I think that that does happen. I do think you're right. And we, we don't have to be naive about it. Our response to it is we are also better when they're experimenting in this way because we have to practice as queer people or not queer people. We have to practice inherent respect. So in that moment, even if your kid is experimenting, they are telling you who they are. They are telling you, I am a kid that is experimenting. Now, if we look at trans kids, all of the research that we have for trans kids that get surgery or go through hormone replacement, it is truly after a five to 10 year period, they have to a five and a 10 year study. The amount of kids that are unhappy with the surgery is like 1%. And so there, I'm sure, I'm sure we can find examples of, of kids that maybe are struggling with their mental health that do this because they saw someone else do it and they were looking for community. And, but most of the time when people take these massive steps with their body, including children, they are doing it because they know exactly who they are. And the kids that are experimenting, quote unquote, with pronouns, my words, experimenting, quote unquote, pronouns, they're not asking for hormone therapy. You know, most of the kids that are experimenting are not asking for surgery. They're not asking for these massive changes. It's the trans kids that know that are asking. But also the 1% that you just talked about, which is a, a you know, a kind of a free floating statistic that you were saying is about mm-hmm. 1%. But like, I bet 1% of women who decide to have children then think that they didn't want to have the children and no one's saying, well, yes. <laughs> you shouldn't have become a mother then. Yes. A hundred percent. Well, and it, when we talk about body mod, like, I'm sorry, I have, I, one of my friend's moms got breast surgery. She got breast implants and she didn't end up liking it. That's none of my fucking business. And if we legislated every time that women or men, cis women and cis men changed their bodies to fit into femininity or masculinity, plastic surgeons would be out of a job. Now, all of a sudden you have queer people that are like, well, I'd also like to be closer to my body. And these people are like, it's like, I I really don't understand it. You have all these men that are going through these, these like jaw implants and all this shit that is so they can get closer to cultural gender. We are talking about getting closer to ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. Also, like I do sometimes think what did what did everyone expect? I mean, like we're the generation that took loads of MGMA, which is like a mind opening thing. <laughs> yeah. What did what did we expect yeah. the next generation to be like? like <laughs> yeah, oh sorry, we made, we made our kids too fucking rad. <laughs> you've um you've already mentioned school and trying to fit in, which is to a certain extent trying to avoid being bullied, which I don't think is. I think everyone goes through that at school to one degree or another, some worse, but we, school is a shit place, I think. (laughs) But mental health, you know, I (laughs) start wrapping our chat up. You said in an interview, and this was the moment that I fell in love with you. Someone asked about your skincare routine and you said that you work too much. You get home, you don't wash for shower, mm. you go to bed. And I thought, I found my partner in crime. <laughs> every time I go for a facial, which is about once every three years, and I tell the facialist <laughs> that I don't take my makeup off, I just, I'm like such a tomboy. She's like, you're you too, what? And I was like, there she is. But your skin looks great. So I think listen, I need fuck to, her. I need to caveat the fact that I am blessed with good good skin and I and I and I, and I had a Swedish bigamist grandfather who gave me my cheekbones. Like, <laughs> you know, there's some things around it that I don't have I have lots and lots of things that I really struggle to love about myself, but my skin has never been something for me. But I did love that you said that. But I do want to know if 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 a skincare routine is not part of your self-care routine, how how are you looking after your mental health today, ER? I have a therapist and also in, I have a therapist who is a trans man. So, um, I only, I only see, uh, women or queer people. I don't go to any male doctors ever for anything at all. And that is one of the ways that I take care of my mental health. I have a partner who I feel very communicative with 
it's a relationship that is very shame free for me. And that has been a really big shift in my mental health. I really feel like I can express negative thoughts and negative feelings in a healthy way and I'm not receiving judgment back. So then the shame dissipates and I'm like, Oh, I didn't, I only weigh zero pounds. Like there's nothing on my shoulders. That answers the 150 questions that I got from the community about whether or not you're single. (laughs) 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 And the last way that I take care of myself, and I think this is so important. I talk about it all the time is I, I work out. I, I work out every day. But I do that, one, because I'm training for the queer revolution. Um, and two, because... Sorry, I'm I think, laughing. I I think just, is that joke? <laughs> wink, wink. Yes. I saw this comedian, someone reposted this comedian this week, Eeyore, and it was a, a queer woman saying, listen, just because... I just didn't find it funny. It said, listen, if you're an ugly straight woman and you think that because you're not getting any like hookups in the straight world, don't come into our world. You're still ugly in our world. I got to find that. First of all, I'll I'll never call call a woman ugly. I think that's awful. So the the premise of the joke is a little violent. (laughs) <laughs> but I, I am kind of like, yeah, fix your own community before you start fucking with mine. Um, <laughs> that is, how I feel I, I'm like, take responsibility for your men's. Okay. Like you, we, all these queer people, we're checking each other all the time. We're checking each other so fucking hard all the time that there are jokes made about how we don't get along. We get along. We're just checking each other. Men and women, cis men and women in hetero relationships. Y'all got to make your community better. Stop fucking with us. Make your shit better. And then yeah. you can come inside. Stay in, slay, slay in your own lane. Like, slay in your own lane. So actually, <laughs> when you say queer revolution, you're not meaning, well, you might be, but like, you're not saying to take over the world. Because for me, revolution is like, when am I going to get to take over the world? But what you mean is, is that it's, it's deep acceptance. Actually, that you can just have your community and it's no longer, the revolution is that it's no longer alternative, that it's, that coming back to that conversation about normalize, it's like you're not normal because you're your thing, whatever you do within that community, but that actually it's no longer, we don't have to have, like what you want is us not to have this conversation anymore. Well, I love this conversation actually, but what I want but Imagine is, a world where we didn't have to have it. That's imagine the thing, a world where it wasn't necessary. I love the <gasps> conversations that we get to have about identity. I think identity is beautiful. Everyone has beautiful identity and I think we should be able to share it. What I don't want is I don't want to exist in opposition to anyone. I don't want to... Dualism. Yeah, I don't, I don't... I When I talk about queer revolution, one of the things that is part of the queer revolution is stop looking to heteroculture and trying to find yourself inside of it. You're never going to find yourself inside of it and you don't need to. Queer community is the best community on earth. And if it wasn't, they wouldn't be legislating to ruin it. It's the same thing as... For a lot of marginalized communities, it's all women's groups. Men will complain that they're not invited. For groups that are all people of color, white people will complain that they're not invited. It's always, strangely, the majority that's complaining about not being taken care of in the smallest, safest marginalized spaces because the majority doesn't have the soul that the margins has. So queer revolution is being happy with the soul that we have and not thinking about what the bullies are doing. Right in the second when you're saying that, you have like a rainbow coming across your sweatshirt. It's wild. It's wild. Thank you, God. Just um, <laughs> thank you, God. Uh, th- thank her. Yes. Um, in my mind. Me too. Um, the, ah, I love this. Um, what would you like to see happen for, um, just because you've touched on it and we spoke about it at the beginning, and I promised I'd come back to it in terms of healthcare. So at the moment you make sure that you see a therapist who is a trans man, um, and you won't see a straight cis male gynecologist, what would you love to happen within, within healthcare? I'd like there to be... Non, non-binary trans people. Well, one, I think um, an easy fix. This is like a practical fix that actually just annoys me all the time. They ask for your gender on medical forms. Gender is a social construct that's actually agreed upon. We know this. We know this. They're asking for your sex. If it is helpful for the doctor to know if I have a vagina or if I'm intersex or if I have a penis, then I, I understand that. 
that there's actually no reason for me to have to disclose my gender to a doctor before I get there. I want them to, sure, they can ask for the name that's on my social security card, but the first thing that they should ask for on that phone call is what is your name? What is your, what is the name that you would like us to use? And what are the pronouns that you would like us to use? That's great. That immediately. And then you can go to whatever doctor that you want to, that's using that system. Because if you are comfortable seeing a cis guy, but his practice is trans inclusive and makes people feel safe, like you're probably with a good cis guy. But I personally, I'm a a queer separatist in this one way. I like finding people in my community to do the job. So because one, I want to put money in the hands of the people that are like me and I trust them with my experience. And I think if cis people would like to really be allies, they can find ways to get trusted and getting rid of that medical form shit, getting, getting rid of the, like, I have to give up my entire identity for you to look at my vagina. It's not going to happen for me. So I will make you this promise. I will make you the promise that I'm going to find a trans friendly guy now. And, and, and I'll, I'll send you a little check mark in the DMs when I have that appointment booked. Okay, great. Okay, great. Maybe we can have another chat then. ER Fight Master, yes. it's been such, I mean, it's been educational, entertaining, inspirational <laughs> talking to you. My final question. Thank you for having me. My final me. question, which is probably going to, you know, mm-hmm. uh, completely eradicate everything you've just said, but it's the question that I always ask at the Happy Vagina. So I'm going to, mm-hmm. what makes your vagina happy today? What makes my vagina happy today? I am happy to be on this podcast uh, talking about my vagina because I think culturally sometimes trans and non-binary people have to separate themselves from conversations about our genitals and my pussy rules (laughs) and I'm not getting no complaints. So (laughs) I'm happy to be talking about them today. I'm Mika Simmons. That was ER Fightmaster. This is the Happy Vagina Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. We will see you next week. And don't forget to like, subscribe, rate and review. It helps others to find us. And follow us on social media at The Happy Vagina.